Well, good morning. Thank you for uh, being with us today. We are going to be in Romans chapter 15 uh, this morning. I hope you uh, were able to grab a bulletin with the outline in it, <clears throat> etc. And uh, we are going to be working through uh, verses 7 through 13 uh, today. And in my Bible, maybe in, in your Bible as well, I don't know, uh, it divides the paragraph ap- after verse 7 and before verse 8. So the idea, <clears throat> excuse me, the idea is that verse 8 begins a new paragraph. Um, not all the translations do that. The uh, um, divisions of paragraphs and stuff, that's not inspired Scripture. And so editors discuss and consider uh, how to make those decisions, and so they make their decisions. And the ESV I have in front of me uh, decided to make the paragraph break at the end of 7 and before 8. And uh, I think... Um, that that is a mistake, and uh, it's not a big deal, you know, it's, it's a paragraph division. But um, I think uh, that actually um, verse 7 is beginning the, the kind of the capstone or the, the concluding paragraph of this whole section of uh, particularly chapters 14 and 15. And I think the therefore in uh, verse 7 is beginning a longer summary. It's not just drawing one verse and saying, therefore, do this thing, and let's move on to a different topic. He's drawing a a larger, more extended summary, and then verse 8 begins, at least in the ESV, with the word for, telling you that it's an explanation or giving the ground for why he said what he said in verse 7. So, anyway, that's that's my apologetic for why I'm doing 7 through 13 rather than 8 through 13. We turn to God's Word in Romans chapter 15, and I'm going to begin reading for us our passage for today. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy, as it is written, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with His people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol Him. And again, Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles In Him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Let's pray. Father, we join together this morning as a congregation and come before You in this way, worshiping You, bowing down before You and giving honor to Your name, praising You for what You have done for us in Christ, even those things that are spelled out in this passage. We praise You for this salvation that we have in Jesus. And Father, we come before You humbly, recognizing our own need that we are yet fallen creatures. We are prone to sin against you and even against one another in various ways. And so, Father, we confess our sin to you. We think back on this uh, last week, and we recognize that we have not loved you as we ought, nor have we loved our neighbor as ourself. And that's sin. And so we confess that before you and ask for your forgiveness. And we rejoice that in Christ we have that forgiveness. We rejoice that we have His righteousness as our own, that we have Your Holy Spirit living within us. And I pray this morning as we come to Your Word to discuss this paragraph that Your Holy Spirit would be at work in our hearts, that this time would be useful to You in conforming us to the image of your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. 
We have uh, spent the last two or perhaps two and a half years talking about what it means to be justified by faith. We've discussed in great detail. We went through chapter after chapter and paragraph after paragraph looking at what it means that we have peace with God through Jesus. And we read in chapter 5 and verse 1 where Paul says, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Being justified by faith ought to give us great joy and great peace. That ought to be the condition of our hearts even now, having looked in such detail at those doctrines in the book of Romans. And so the question that I want to put before us today is this, how is your hope? Right now, an assessment of your own hope, an assessment of your own joy, how is your hope doing? With our world being what it is, would you describe yourself as a hopeful person? In your own personal circumstances and relationships, would you say that you are joyful, that you are abounding in hope? <clears throat> when you uh, showed up to church today, did you struggle to contain the abundance of hope and joy in your life? You just, you just couldn't wait to pour it out on other people. You just couldn't wait to share with others. You just couldn't wait to bring other people into this great hope, this great joy that you have. Is that, is that you this morning? Would you describe yourself as a joyful person? Or, or perhaps a better question would be, would those around you, those who are close to you, would they describe you as being hopeful, abounding in hope? That's the question I want to put before us today is what is your hope like right now, an honest assessment, looking into your own heart. Our passage today wraps up a section that started back in chapter 14 and verse 1, and the discussion through these couple of chapters has focused on relationships between Jews and Gentiles with their different backgrounds and then their different uh, relationship to certain things like eating meat sacrificed to idols or, or drinking wine that, that perhaps was sacrificed to idols as well. And, and they, they have different backgrounds, they have different decisions, different determinations that they've made on whether uh, they themselves will participate and whatnot. And so Paul has talked about how they as a church made up of Jew and Gentile with varying backgrounds, how they are to work through those things in a godly fashion, how they are to relate to one another in church. And so with that as kind of uh, the background of chapter 14 and chapter 15, that brings us to our passage today where Paul tells us in verse 7, therefore welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Now, it, it seems, and it was a little confusing to me when I first started working through this, and I think it appears that way to some of the, <clears throat> some of the uh, editors who have put together our versions that draw the paragraph division after verse 7 and before verse 8, what is the connection between what he says in verse 7 and what he's going to say in verse 8 and following? Is he, is he transitioning to a new topic in verse 8? Is he moving on to a new discussion and, and this, is, this is an entirely separate paragraph? I don't think that's the case. I think there is a closer connection between what he says in verse 7 and what he's going to say in verse 8 and following. And and uh, so our goal today is to work through that passage together and see what is that connection. And by the way, this is not just me saying I'm going to go against all of the Bible uh, uh, editors and do this thing. The scholars that I looked at tended to see 7 through 13 as the paragraph. It's the editors, it's the translators that have made it typically uh, the paragraph break after uh, 7. I will try not to address that issue anymore, but as you know, I'm curious about those kinds of things and like to pay attention to them. But let's dive into our passage and let's look at what it means. And we see, first of all, in verse 8, that Jesus is faithful to the Jews. He is faithful to the Jews. There had been promises given. Verse 8, for I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. Now, we could 
spend quite a while talking about what promises were given to the patriarchs and how those are fulfilled in Christ, etc. But just very briefly, I want to reflect back on what Paul said in, in chapter 4. He referred to the promise to Abraham that he would be heir of the world. That's the first promise. The, another promise to Abraham is, and related to that would be that he was to be the father of many nations. But I think maybe the greatest promise made to Abraham is all the way back in Genesis chapter 15 and verse 6, the, prob- the promise that Abraham was declared righteous by faith in the Lord. That was just a promise given to him. It was a reality he couldn't test in his own life. It was a spiritual reality that, that at times might have been evidenced in his life, at times not so evidenced in his life, but it was a spiritual reality, a statement from God about his about his position before God. And God was saying, you're righteous before me. I've declared you righteous before me because you believe in me. And I think that's the the biggest promise that's going on here. Well, that promise that was made is now a promise kept. How, How could it be that Abraham could be counted righteous simply by believing the Lord? That's a bold statement. And we in the church, we talk about that We've preached on it a lot. We've read it in, uh, in the Old Testament. We've read it in the New Testament. And we know that that's a big statement, that Abraham was, he believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. How can that be? How can it be that his faith in God somehow equates to him being declared righteous before God? Well, that, that's, that's the message of the gospel, isn't it? And that is something that you see spelled out again and again through the course of the Bible and that Paul has developed in great detail in Romans and that we've spent a lot of time talking about, and that is the great exchange that God made promises to Abraham. Abraham believed those promises, and God counted him as righteous before God. His account was righteous before God. You can examine Abraham's life, and you can see times where, hey, he's pretty righteous, and you can see times where, hey, he's not righteous at all, right? It wasn't, he wasn't saying Abraham believed God, and thus he became righteous in his life, righteous enough that God would say, hey, good job, you won the prize. That, that's not the gospel. That's not what happened, and that's not what happens for us. The fact is Abraham was a sinner, just like you're a sinner. Abraham had guilt before God. Abraham had accumulated for himself a debt before God that must be paid. God being righteous, Abraham not being righteous, and the fact that Abraham owed God all of his obedience because God is his creator, and yet Abraham had not obeyed him perfectly. He had his own guilt, and yet somehow by faith, God can say, you have been counted righteous. How can that be? Is God just going to just wipe away and ignore? Is He going to wink at that guilt that Abraham has? Well, no. When Christ comes on the scene, we see the fulfillment. We see the playing out in history of what is actually going on, that Jesus Himself comes on the scene, the Son of God takes on flesh and is obedient where Abraham had not been obedient, where we have not been obedient. But then He went to the cross to pay the penalty for sin. God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. And that sin was punished in Christ. Abraham's sin was punished in Christ. My sin was punished in Christ. Your sin punished in Christ. So that the punishment for sin has happened, but not in your life. Jesus took that on. Jesus was punished for sin. And that account of righteousness that Jesus had actually done is given to us by faith. There's an exchange that happens so that my guilt goes to Jesus and is punished in Him. And His righteousness comes to me and is credited to me. So that by faith, I am declared righteous. By faith, Abraham was declared to be righteous. That promise was made in the Old Testament, was was promised to Abraham in Genesis chapter 15 and verse 6 and it's fulfilled, it's completed in Jesus. That promise has been kept. 
And so we have a promise made, we have a promise kept, and, and thus we see in verse 8 that God is true. Him keeping His promises demonstrates that God Himself is true. He keeps His promises. And Jesus' ministry among the Jews proved that, demonstrated God keeping His promises to them. We, we don't have time to do a survey of, of the history of the Old Testament and God's dealing with the nation of Israel, but if you think about the hurdles and the obstacles that God had to overcome in order to bring to pass the fulfillment of that promise. The promise is made to Abraham. Well, it turns out Abraham and Sarah struggled to have a child. And then once they did have a child, God said, Abraham, take this beloved child and go sacrifice him to me. And so now Abraham is challenged. He's going to have to go sacrifice Isaac. And of course, God intervenes in that case to make it so that there is a substitute sacrifice made there. And so Isaac lives, Isaac grows to adulthood. Well, it turns out Isaac marries, and his wife's barren too. They can't have kids either. And so there's another obstacle, there's another thing in the way. Well, of course, they do end up having children, and the, the nation of Israel, which is a tribe at that point, grows and, and is getting larger. Well, then famine comes and threatens those people. The very, the very people through whom the promise to the world would be fulfilled are threatened because there's starvation in their land, and so they end up going down to Israel, and or excuse me, to Egypt, and their time in Egypt turns into 400 years, and it's not just a visit. They're not just guests, though it starts out that way, but pretty soon they become slaves, and now they're in chains when they're in Egypt. They're enslaved there for 400 years. And then, of course, God miraculously and wonderfully delivers them from that obstacle and, and brings them even into the land. Everything is going to be great now. We've got a king. We've got, we've got the temple to worship, and everything's going to be wonderful, right? No. Their own disobedience, their own idolatry got in the way, stood in the way of the fulfillment of God's promise. And on and on and on we could continue to trace this, but God shows Himself faithful. God keeps His Word in sending Jesus. He guarantees that promise. He brings that promise to pass, regardless of all of the obstacles. And so before we continue on, there's a point of application here. Christian, you can trust what God has promised. You can trust, regardless of the obstacles, regardless of the things in your mind where you say, yeah, but God keeps His promises. Trust that He will never leave or forsake His children. Trust Him when He says that a right standing before God is yours by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That is His promise. Trust Him in that. So Jesus has shown Himself faithful toward the Jews, and Jesus includes the Gentiles Verses 9 through 12 point this out. So he became a servant to the circumcised to demonstrate, to confirm the promises there given to the patriarchs, and verse 9, in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. And then it goes through four different quotations from the Old Testament. I'm not going to spend a lot of time focusing on those uh, quotations from the Old Testament, but again, they are promises given to the Gentiles about the Gentiles. In verse 9, David says that he himself will praise God, he will, he will sing of God's name, and he will do so among the Gentiles as a witness, as a testimony, celebrating God amongst the Gentiles. In verses 10 through 11, Moses and then the psalmist say that the Gentiles themselves should join in praising God. They should join in rejoicing in God for the redemption that He has done in the nation of Israel. So there are promises given about the Gentiles joining in and rejoicing in what God has done in Israel. And then we see, secondly, that mercy is extended. It's not just mercy to Israel that we should celebrate, not just mercy to this one people group or this one nation that we should praise God for, but actually that mercy is extended. Isaiah says in verse 12, he tells us of the root of Jesse who will come and rule the nations, and in him will the Gentiles hope. No longer is God faithful to the Jews over there or the nation of Israel over there, and we should praise God that He is faithful in blessing His people. That blessing actually extends out to us so that we as Gentiles find God to be our hope as well. And so that mercy is extended to us, and then 
we see, uh, if you look at the tone of each of these, and I wish we could take time to go through uh, each of these uh, quotations and work through them, we, we don't really, but if you look at the tone of them, what's the tone? It's rejoicing. It's praising. It's a response of praise. The, the message there isn't, nations, fall in line behind the Lord. After all, God is the Lord, and you need to submit to Him, so fall in line. That, that, that's not the tone, right? They do fall in line. Gentiles do come in and enter into the covenant. Gentiles do come in and become God's people, but the tone is that they get to rejoice for it. This is a wonderful celebration. This isn't just a, well, now we're, we're you know, soldiers and we've fallen in line and, and, we're, and we're in lockstep and all that. No, this is, this is a party. This is a celebration, the fact that we get to be involved, we get to be included, that God's faithfulness to His people has now extended. That from the very beginning, from the outset, His, his, his sights were set beyond just one particular ethnic group, just one particular locale on the earth. From the beginning, His sights were set to the corners of the earth, to you and to me. So Christian, praise God that He has saved you. He had no obligation to do so. He had no obligation towards you. And yet, He extended His mercy to you. That you get to have peace with God, that's the work of God. That's the mercy of God. That's the grace of God to save sinners like you. And so, like the Gentiles, and as a Gentile, in response, praise Him and extol Him, lift up His name, glorify God for this gracious salvation that we have in Christ. And this brings us to point number three. Because of God's redeeming work for Israel and for us Gentiles, we can have supernatural, abundant hope. Verse 13, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Now, we, we always need to remind ourselves that this biblical notion of hope is not like the kind of hope that we've had uh, in the last couple of weeks as we've been checking the weather, okay? I hope it cools down, right? I look at my phone, I, you know, I, I open up the weather, and I, my hope is dashed. <laughs> Triple digits for how long? <laughs> How long can it even be that way, right? It's that kind of hope, boy, I hope it cools off, is not a biblical hope. A biblical hope is a, a, a sure thing. It's a guarantee because God said so. It's reliable. You can trust it, though it hasn't yet been brought to pass. Though it had, I don't yet see it right now, yet it will be the case because God said so. And this kind of hope that he's talking about here, he says it's the Holy Spirit's work. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. This is God's work. This is the, the work of the Spirit of God in our lives to give us hope. Because we're, we're physical beings, we see and live in this world around us, we're influenced by our circumstances. And, and we can begin to only see on this level. Well, things are bad over there, and things are bad over there, and things are bad over there. Wow, things are bad, right? I don't have a lot of hope in that context. What he's saying is that the Spirit of God works within us to cause us to look above and beyond our circumstances, the world around us, to look at God Himself and what He has promised us so that our eyes become fixed on Him. That, that, that is not purely a discipline on our part. We should fix our eyes on God. We should hope in God. Psalm 42 and Psalm 43 clearly tell us to, to hope in God. Why are you downcast, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation. It is a command given to us, hope in God. But here in this passage, he's pointing out that it's also something given to us by the Spirit of God like so many other things in the Christian life that are commanded of us and yet given to us at the same time. Our hope is in the redemptive work of God in Christ on our behalf. 
And that hope requires bolstering, it requires strengthening, it requires feeding by the Holy Spirit. Now, I asked at the beginning of the message how your hope is doing. Well, as a Christian, you know enough to say, well, yes, I have hope, and it's an enduring hope. It continues on, though I may not feel it right now. Right? We know that. We know that we have hope in Christ. We know that we have hope, right? It's, a, it's, it's, it's perhaps a conscious thing that if in our Sunday school class, if we were to take a poll, you would all get the answer right. Yes, we have hope in Christ. But my question was not that. It wasn't primarily a theological question. My question was about your own heart and the condition of your own heart. When you, when you take an, a, an assessment, how, how's your hope doing? Are you just bursting with hope? Are you kind of not so much? Maybe it's withered. Maybe it's dry. Maybe, maybe you're not really feeling it, as they say. When, when I preach a message, it's a, it's a conscious determination in my mind to direct you to Christ and to what He has done every week, wherever we are in whatever passage, to direct us to Christ, to, to point to what He has done in order to bolster your hope in order to bolster your joy, there is, there is hope to be found in Him. That's where our hope comes from, is from Christ Himself. But I, I, I want to continue on in our, in our topic right here, but here, here's a point of application. Because our, our hope can sometimes appear pretty small and weak. And here's, here's a point of application. If that's you, Ask the God of hope to make your hope grow and abound by the sure and certain work of His Holy Spirit as you look at the Savior's completed work. There's a, there's a place in this. There's a, this is a prayer that, that Paul is praying for us. We can pray that same prayer. My hope is weak. Lord, please strengthen my hope. Please strengthen my hope. And so we pray. But what means does God use to cause us to abound in hope? Because He's not talking about having a pretty good hope. He says that you may abound in hope. What means does He use to bring that about? Well, He does so by filling you with all the joy and peace that there is in believing. Joy and peace in believing. Christian, there is nothing better than this salvation that we have in Christ. Mankind was created in God's image to serve Him as His Creator and Lord with full obedience, with joy, and in perfect harmony with God. That's the condition in which man was created. And then sin enters the picture, and that blessed condition is compromised, it's marred, it's, it's ruined. And obedience and service turn into disobedience and rebellion. And submission becomes self-will. And where there had been harmony between God and man, there is now enmity and discord. The joy is gone. The peace is gone. The hope is gone, but when we trust in Christ, when you trusted in Christ, you found that your sins were forgiven, and you found that your account was made full with an alien righteousness, not a righteousness of your own merit, of your own doing. It was a righteousness from another, from Jesus, given to you. You found that your account was full, your sins had been washed away, your enmity with God was done away with and peace and love were in its place. And where formerly there had been hopelessness, futility, there is now a powerful joy and a hope. And these are yours and mine because we have been redeemed in Christ. These realities are ours because we've been redeemed in Christ. So the question remains, why are those things not a greater reality in my life? or in your life? That's the question, because when I asked early on how your hope is doing, I hope you so, took some note of your answer. You still recall that when you take an assessment of your life and you think about, you know, how your hope is doing, my guess is that many of us 
If we were honest with ourselves, if we were honest together and honest before the Lord, the answer was maybe no better than so-so. Why is that the case? Why does Paul have to pray that God would give them these things if they are supposed to be ours already? If they are supposed to be theirs already, why does Paul have to pray about it? And why does he pray that prayer at this particular point in the letter? at the conclusion of a lengthy discussion of the struggles between Jews and Gentiles in the church. Why does he do that? Well, here's my proposal for why that is. Here's what's going on. Our personal joy and peace and hope in Christ are impacted by our relationships with other Christians. Our own experience of joy and hope and peace is impacted can be limited by our relationships with other Christians. We drown out and we mute our hope and our joy in Christ when we have discord with Christ's people. If we allow judgmentalism and disharmony, like between the Jews and the Gentiles that Paul was dealing with, when we allow those things to remain in our Christian relationships and within the church, not only will our personal experience of joy and peace be hampered, but that of the entire body is hampered because of these kinds of struggles in relationships. Your relationships within the body of Christ should be characterized by joy and by peace. And if they're not, ask yourself why that is. That's what Paul was addressing in this portion of the letter where he's talking to Jewish and Gentile believers who have different positions on meat sacrificed to idols and on, on wine sacrificed to idols and their relationships and the observance of a certain days and, and things like that. But why is it for us? Why might that be in your own heart, in your own life? Well, this is the, the point in the sermon where we have to be very conscious that, that this message is for me. It's not for my neighbor. There, there are some messages, right, some, some application points or some sermons that uh, when you hear it preached, you kind of look over at your neighbor and you're supposed to be writing that down <laughs> because you need that, pal, right? This isn't that time. This message is for me and not my neighbor. This message is for you and not your neighbor. The Jews and the Gentiles who made up the church at Rome had all kinds of reasons to look sideways at one another. We went through the history of the church. It started off as a Jewish church with some Gentile converts. Well, then the Jews were kicked out of Rome, and it suddenly became an entirely Gentile church. Well, they kind of took over. They grew. They started doing things the way they wanted to. Well, after a time, the Jews were inserted back in, and the Jews found that, hey, this used to be our church, and now it's completely different. Why do we do all these Gentile things? And, and, and all of our Jewish traditions are out the door, and now there's, there's infighting on those kinds of things. And you add in that, uh, into that the fact that you've got some who come from a background that makes it so they could never eat meat sacrificed to idols. And in fact, it would be better just not to eat meat so that you don't run that risk. And you've got other people for whom it's not a big deal. We can just do this. It's cheaper anyway, and we'll, we'll just eat the meat sacrificed to idols or the wine. You've got struggles within the congregation. Leadership changes that led to difficulties when the Jews were kicked out, all of that stuff. The church at Rome had reason to look sideways at one another. And this section of Romans was written to show them how to work through those differences in a godly manner and to exhort them to do so. Welcome one another. Welcome the weaker brother. Welcome one another. Paul says in verse 7, and the Lord is telling us, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Now remember, the command is not, be sure that you are welcomed. The command is not for your neighbor to benefit you. There will be benefits to you as your neighbor takes on that command. The command is to you. The command is to me. It's a command given to me on how I relate to others, not a command about what expectations I then put upon other people for how they ought to relate to me. Let's take this one to heart. This one is for me. This one is for you. We may experience a lack of joy and hope 
in our lives, and we may think that that is happening because we are not being welcomed by others. We may think it's happening because of the way we are being treated or not treated by other Christians, when in fact the problem may be that we ourselves are unwilling to welcome others, and thus we experience a lack of joy and hope and peace in our lives. We are to welcome one another, not because we like it, not even necessarily because we want to do it. We do so for the glory of God. As God is building the church, He takes people from disparate backgrounds who, humanly speaking, should not be able to get along, and He makes them family. He joins them together. It is glorifying to God when He does so. And so He intentionally includes people from every stripe and every walk of life. He does that on purpose. He does that to glorify Himself. Only God Almighty could work in the hearts of people to take people from such different backgrounds and and opposed backgrounds as Jew and Gentile and unite them together in love and unity and harmony. Only God who can work in the heart could do such a thing. And so Paul says in verse 7, therefore welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Well, that raises the question, I've said it about 10 times, what, uh, welcome one another, or what does it mean to welcome one another? The image going on in verse 14 and fi- uh, chapter 14 and chapter 15, the image is of a dinner. You're sitting at the table together, right? When we take the Lord's Supper, we're a large congregation, and now because of COVID things that we've been doing for a while, we, we don't even... We don't, you know, it's not even passed around, right? You, you, you pick it up on yourself as you, as you come in the back. But the idea is of a table, right? A table of Christians, and we're eating together. We're having the meal together. And when we are welcoming one another in the way that Paul would have us, you've got a woman sitting here. She has wine in front of her that may have been sacrificed to idols. And right next to her, you have a woman who would never touch the stuff because that could have been sacrificed to idols and and it just bothers my conscience. And they're sitting together. Neither one is judging the other. Neither one is looking down on the other. They're sitting side by side in joy and in harmony. Or you've got a man who eats meat that's been sacrificed to idols. Next to him is a man whose conscience just just won't let him do that because it could have been tainted and and I I just don't want to do that. And so he eats only vegetables. Sitting right beside each other. Neither one is judging the other. Neither one is putting the other one down, despising the other one. Neither belittles. So they can eat, they can share their meal, and do so in perfect harmony and contentment with one another. In fact, rather than separating, because it would make sense, let's put the wine drinkers down there and the non-wine drinkers over here. Let's put the meat eaters over there and the non-meat eaters over here, and we can kind of segregate. We don't. The idea is they invite someone different to sit next to them to enjoy the meal in peace and joy with them. This all isn't in the text. It's kind of the image that's going on of what it means to welcome, what it means to receive, particularly in regard to these topics that we've been talking about. They don't separate. They actually invite those who are different to sit next to them. And so their meal together, rather than being a source of fighting because they have wine and we don't have wine, you know, fighting over that, it actually becomes a source of joy because God in His infinite wisdom and His saving grace has saved people like that from that background and people like that from that background. And so I can rejoice and praise God. I'll tell you, in my sinful moments, maybe you can relate, maybe I'm going out on a limb. In my sinful moments, I, I kind of think that God should just kind of save people like me because I'm a catch, right? And if the kingdom of God was made up of people like me, that'd be sweet, Right? That, that, that's in my sinful moments, right? And then, and then reality sets in and the Lord convicts me and, and I look around and I see the beauty of the diversity within the body of Christ. People from all kinds of backgrounds. People who grew up in Christian homes, people with rough backgrounds. People who grew up in other religions, people who grew up with no religion. W- working together, figuring out how to live out this Christian life together. That's beautiful when God does that. And that's a a picture of what it's going to be like in glory when, when we see a, a, a great multitude of people from every tribe and tongue, people. Not everybody has to be like me. 
And so these people at this table, they sit together joyfully and, they, and peacefully, and they, they share the same meal. They're not divided by any kind of personal or, or cultural baggage. They welcome one another. They welcome one another. And so the, the, the application for us is very simple. It's verse 7. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. And he says, when that happens, hope, there is a hope that abounds. He says, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. By the way, that's all in plurals. It's not you individually. It's not you individually. It's not as if he said, may the God of hope fill you individually with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you individually may abound in hope. That's wrapped up in this. These are plurals. May you, may you as a group, may God fill, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. So this is a hope that abounds. We, we ought to be finding hope in the church. But honestly, sometimes the church can be a place of discouragement. We ought to be rejoicing to be with God's people, the, the redeemed, the elect. We ought to be rejoicing. And often it's a source of the opposite. Ugh. I, know, I, I know I should love to go to church. I know I should want to be there. But oh, it's so discouraging. It's so hard. Sometimes that is the case. And the tendency when that happens for us can be to blame those people at church for my discouragement, for me to blame you, for you to blame one another, for you to blame me. It's those other people. You know, it's not me. It's those other people. It's their fault. It's not your fault. But what this section of Scripture is teaching is that I am very often the reason that I don't find encouragement at church. I am very often the reason that my hope is being diminished and not growing. So, we, Christians, we need to look a little closer to home, perhaps, than we are used to looking on this topic. Maybe we are not finding joy and hope in church because we won't welcome one another. We are unwilling to rejoice and praise God that He would save someone so different from me, so different from us, that God might be doing something different, that, that that person might be in a different place, that they might be from a different background, that they might have different scruples. And so I refuse to rejoice, and so my hope diminishes. I won't celebrate what God is doing. Well, that raises the question for us, what sort of things, what sort of differences, right? Because the Bible clearly spells out things we are to believe, things we are to do, and so in, in, in what way, how much latitude are we giving here, right? Well, first of all, what sorts of things are we not talking about? He's not talking about welcoming those who are living in unrepentant sin, right? In, uh, in 1 Corinthians, uh, he talks about this, Paul talks about this exact same thing where he says, he says, don't, don't welcome someone, don't associate with someone who is an idolater, they're a drunkard, they're a liar, they're a thief, they're all these things. And it's clear he's talking about those who name the name of Christ and are that person. So he's not talking about a Christian who's living in unrepentant sin, nor is he talking about accepting those and, and trying to have fellowship with those who have some sort of heretical doctrine. Now, there's Christian doctrine that we're talking about within which we have this acceptance, this welcoming. There's Christian doctrine. We're not, we're, not, we're not ecumenical. We're not drawing in those who have some sort of uh, wild doctrine or heretical doctrinal beliefs. What are we talking about? Well, the area of meat has been sacrificed to idols. That's the one he's talking about specifically, or wine that could potentially have been sacrificed to idols. And we talked about even, even wine, not because it's been sacrificed to idols, but because of the warnings given in Scripture and, and whatnot that some say, no, absolutely, I, I'm, I'm not going to touch it ever. And you've got those who say, no, there, yeah, there are warnings in Scripture. I'm going to obey those warnings and heed them, but it's been given for this purpose, and, and, and I'm, going to, I'm going to partake within, within godly bounds. And you've got those living side by side, right? Or other, you know, certain rituals, right? If, if we're not commanded in Scripture to celebrate Christmas, 
I haven't read that yet. I've, you know, tried to read my Bible, and I haven't found that verse where we're commanded to celebrate Christmas, right? Well, some people love to celebrate Christmas, and it's a huge deal, and, it, and, it, and it, it, it's something they, they must celebrate, right? Well, different rituals, different, different days of the year, something like that, certain, certain scruples, right? Where this is my practice, and I just I can't bring myself to do that, okay. Or maybe differences in gifting. Not everybody's gifted the same way, right? And so all the teachers shouldn't look down on all the non-teachers. And all the, the service-oriented types don't look down on the non-service-oriented types. Or those who are extremely merciful don't look down on those who struggle to show mercy, right? This is the kind of diversity we're talking about or other kinds of gray areas. So we welcome one another despite those differences. That brings us to our conclusion. Do you want your hope back? I asked you at the beginning, how's your hope doing? And I hope you were honest. I hope, I hope you were able to, to, to see and assess your own heart in that situation. You want that hope back. It's not what it ought to be. It's, sometimes it's more of a discipline to go to church. Sometimes it's more of a discipline to put a smile on and to, and to greet fellow Christians. Do you want your hope back? Begin to see and celebrate rather than bemoan and complain about the fact that God redeems and works in the hearts of people who are vastly different from you. Celebrate that. Don't get bummed at God that, oh, no, he saved a guy like that. that. There's a guy like that at our church. He's a Christian, yeah, but I just don't know if I can take that. Do you find hope in the church? Not because we're a special people or not because it's a perfect place. The church is not a perfect place and we're not really all that special. But do you find hope in the church because of what Jesus does in the church? what the church is, what the church represents, God's saving work on this earth is represented here. It's pictured here. These are the people of God with whom we worship. Jesus reconciles sinners to God, establishing peace where there had been enmity. And that reconciliation and peace with God works itself out into reconciliation and peace with God's people, with other Christians. Paul will say in Colossians chapter 3, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. That's the key to this whole thing. I stand before God as a forgiven sinner because of what Christ has done. I know my sins, or rather I know most of my sins. I'm becoming aware of more as I grow, as we learned about in Sunday school this morning. God has shown me grace. God has forgiven me in Christ for terrible things, terrible offenses against Him, terrible grievances. And so I, having been forgiven much, how can I withhold forgiveness? another? How can I withhold forgiveness to another who has grieved me in the smallest uh, proportion, smallest fraction of the way I have grieved God, and yet I've received forgiveness? How can I not give forgiveness to you? Forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. And above all these things, put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. So, how is your hope doing? If, you're, if your hope is flagging, if, if in your assessment you, you found a, a distinct lack of joy, a sense of hopelessness, there was not peace, there was worry, there was anxiety, there was discouragement rather than hope, rather than joy. It, it may be that though you are happy to receive forgiveness from God, though you are happy to celebrate the fact that He has shown such grace to you, 
yet you're hesitant to extend that grace to the body of Christ around you. And he says, by doing so, you're not punishing that person. Not that person directly. The whole body suffers, and that person suffers from that. But you're diminishing your own joy. You're diminishing your own hope when you do so because you won't celebrate the saving work of Christ in someone different from you. This passage has been difficult for me, not, not just difficult to understand, though there are elements of that. It's been difficult because of my own heart. How often do I do these things? How often do I hold at arm's length those who are my siblings? I don't want to do that. By doing so, I'm harming you, but, but I'm even diminishing my own hope, and I don't, I don't want to do that. I don't want us to do that to one another. We, as Christians, are the recipients of the boundless grace of God in Jesus, that our, our sins have been forgiven. Complete and perfect righteousness has been given to us so that we stand before God right and free. And we stand before God, by the way, in a right relationship with Him and in free, free access to Him, shoulder to shoulder with one another. And let's celebrate that. And let's rejoice in that. And as we do that, we will see our hope return. We will see our joy that, that, that somehow leaked away and disappeared on us return as we see evidence in the face of each Christian of God's saving work. And we give Him glory for it. Let's pray. Father, this... This passage is striking at the heart of something I had not thought of. Father, I pray that, that You would reveal to us where perhaps we have been unwilling to give grace. We have been unwilling to forgive. We have been unwilling to rejoice in your saving work in someone uh, so different from us, from such a different background that causes friction uh, because of uh, what they're going through and what, uh, the way they're growing and, and, and what I'm going through and the way I'm growing. And I pray that you would reveal that to us as you have revealed it to me. And I confess it as sin, and I pray for forgiveness, and I rejoice in the fact that I do, in fact, have forgiveness in Christ. I pray that you would work in us by your Holy Spirit as we together look to Christ to see what He has done, to celebrate His finished, completed work on our behalf, that we would celebrate that, and we would celebrate the fact that that completed work avails for every Christian, even those different from me. Work in my heart, I pray. Work in our hearts. We pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, working within us, that you, the God of hope, would cause us to abound in hope, even at Parkside Bible Fellowship. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There's going to be a family up here who would love to pray with you. If you want to come up and pray with them, these words from 2 Corinthians chapter 13. Finally, brothers, rejoice, aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. God bless you all, and you are dismissed.